Databytes are data and society speaker series designed to bridge our interdisciplinary research with broader public conversations about the societal implications of data and automation. Welcome to the final installment of Conversations on the Datafied State, a three-part event series we've been hosting this spring, looking at the growing impact of algorithms, automation, and surveillance across civic life, as well as the benefits and risks they pose to the public. My name is Rigoberto Lara Guzman, lead producer for this series, alongside my team behind the scenes who make it all possible. Today's conversation features four expert voices on the ways datafication intersects with race, surveillance, and resistance. It is in this spirit of resistance that I express my grief and solidarity with the Pueblo of Uvalde, Texas, in particular the families of all those young ones. We honor your lives with reverence and uplift all the survivors of gun-inflicted white supremacist violence across Turtle Island and around the world. This conversation was curated by Tamara K. Knopper and Chaz Arnett, both distinguished thinkers in this field and current faculty fellows here at Data and Society. Tamara and Chaz, I turn it over to you now to introduce our guests and get this conversation started. Thank you, Rigo. And I want to just thank you, um, uh, Rigo uh, Lara Guzman, for organizing this event and producing it, um, and for your heartfelt introduction. Thank you so much. Um, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about what our conversation is and how it fits into the three-part series. Um, so we're gathering as a third installment of the three-part conversation, as Rigo mentioned, on the datafied state. And this is a new research initiative at Data and Society, developed by Jenna Burrell and Ranjit Singh. And as Burrell and Singh tell us, the datafied state is one remade by the data sources and infrastructures, computational tools and techniques that are being adopted across government, just as they are in the private sector. Governments also procure, develop, implement, and legally mandate the use of digital and computational systems. Government use of tech and the transformation of government through its use is the primary interest and concern of data and society's research on the datafied state. And as Rigo mentioned, this is the concluding conversation in the three-part series, and our conversation is focused on race, surveillance, and resistance. Um, and the first part of the series focused on what is public interest and the second part on the automated state. Our conversation today will consider both the extractive and repressive aspects of data and technology and how communities are resisting and can try to respond. We'll consider both how to defend ourselves from the harmful aspects of the state, as well as shaping demands we can make of the state for building the world we want. And in the process, consider what role does data play in this? These are not abstract questions. Our conversation is happening a day after an 18-year-old went into an elementary school with guns and killed, at the latest count, 21 people. Many have been wounded, and they are still accounting for children. 11 days ago, an 18-year-old drove hours to go to a grocery store in a predominantly Black neighborhood and killed 10 people. Attacks and killings of Asian Americans populate the news. All of these people's lives cut short. Some of the biggest beneficiaries of data extraction and harm to non-white communities, the police and ICE, are the ones we are told who will save us from these threats of racial violence. Many of us, regardless of race, live lives of constant vulnerability to premature death through other forms of data extraction, particularly in terms of how it shapes ranking systems that inform our socioeconomic opportunities. Ruth Wilson Gilmore tells us nothing is inevitable and the state is not some monolithic ruling class entity. She also states, watch out for fetishizing the state. The state doesn't think. The state doesn't think and do. People enliven the state to think and do. How then do we enliven the state to think and do in a non-carceral, non-militaristic, non-harmful way? And what role does data play in this? And what does this mean for our concerns about surveillance and privacy and our work in data literacy, data activism, and data justice. How can we live long, healthy, joyful lives in a datafied world and with a datafied state? Again, these are not abstract questions. And um, my colleague Chaz will now introduce our guest. Thank you. Wow, Tamara and Rigo, 
thank you for both uh, those powerful uh, framings and introductions. Um, so I'd just like to say when Tamara and I uh, had conversations about, um, you know, how to shape and, and frame this discussion today, uh, we wanted to focus on resistance and we wanted to think about resistance um, in a broad sense. So not just uh, resistance as um, individual efforts, but resistance as collective movement, uh, not just uh, resistance um, as reactionary, but resistance as thoughtful, strategic, um, uh, well-planned, thought out uh, resistance as well. And along those lines, we were thinking of how uh, we can actually translate, um, you know, some of our uh, efforts to push back into effective organizing, um, how to translate that into active learning and teaching, how to translate that into the development of law and policy. And when we were thinking about those goals and aims, uh, we immediately thought about uh, Raul and uh, Alex uh, to have join us for this discussion. So we're really, really happy uh, that they were able to join us because they are the perfect people uh, to speak with you today um, about these issues. Um, and so I'll give a brief introduction of, of both um, and then I'll open up uh, this discussion. So Alexandra uh, Goodwin is currently the Deputy uh, Campaign Director at the Action Center on Race and the Economy, where she is working with organizers and communities around the country against the surveillance company ShotSpotter. Uh, her work at um, the Action Center currently focuses on the relationship between the finance industry and policing, um, also racialized capitalism, and how these things uh, ex uh, exacerbate, excuse me, and deepen uh, oppression. Um, in addition to her work at the Action Center, Alex is also organizing locally against Chicago's uh, contract uh, with ShotSpotter. Uh, she is also uh, actively organizing and working with BYP 100 Chicago um, against Chicago's gang database uh, practices, and she's also a part of Chicago's defund campaign. Uh, Raul, Raul uh, Carrillo uh, is the Deputy Director of the Law and Political Economy Project. Um, he is also an associate research scholar at Yale Law School, where he also wears the hat of uh, being a resident fellow with Yale's Information Society project. His research critically analyzes the laws of money, banking, finance, um, and uh, approaches uh, those topics, thinking of money as a form of uh, technology of governance. Uh, specifically, excuse me, uh, his work advances a unified, uh, a unified approach uh, to the regulation of finance and tech sectors. Um, so his work currently, uh, his, his work, his advocacy, his uh, research and scholarship uh, thus focuses on the uses of digital currency, credit scoring, and illicit flows. Uh, so with that being said, I would like to open it up um, and uh, have both of our guests uh, begin by talking about the work that they are um, engaged in and give us more insights into the projects that they are working on. And perhaps we can begin with uh, you, Alex. Uh, it really started to um, open more doors for us to see that the cost of policing that we are paying exists outside of police department budgets, um, which I think is like slowly how I rolled into working on things around surveillance and equipment contracts because like these again are costs for policing that exist outside of um of police department budgets thank you uh Raul? sure thing um thanks jazz um great to be here with you and tamara and alex and rigo um this is a tough day to talk about all of this but i'm also happy to be in this space in particular um and be able to connect some things. So my work uh, focuses on a subtle form of surveillance, um, as most people would consider it, which is just the financial system and the way that we pay for things and the way that we participate in the economy and the data that we generate when we do that. Um, in many ways, it's about how people or institutions see through money how they map the data and they generate, like when, where, how, and why, and how they benefit, um, often at the expense of exactly you know who. And the fact is that right now, um, there are very few laws 
that substantively substantively protect um, data from going from the private financial system to the government financial system. Governments also collect uh, financial data themselves. We don't really think about it as fintech, you know, so to speak, or through another buzzword. But the government partners with all these new companies for EBT cards, for release cards that people get when they leave, um, you know, a carceral institution, for transit. All of this data is available to law enforcement uh, in various ways. And so there is a nexus here between uh, what we do with money and law enforcement, direct surveillance and mass surveillance. Mm -hmm. And the issue here, particularly for communities of color, and this intersects with a lot of Tamara's work, is that all these new data intensive technologies are cast as tools for financial inclusion, right? Like particular people are being targeted for improvement, for development in this neighborhood, for legibility, which we need, like we gotta be credit visible in many cases, but you know, as Tamara has written, sometimes that visibility is compulsory. And so what we're, we're brought into a system that is nominally, especially for our benefit, but in practice puts us at particular dangers. And it represents a sort of tension that we have where, you know, we wanna have an affirmative positive vision, I think for the future and one that represents our interests and maybe even comes from particular communities that we're in. But at the same time, when we're talking about this level of data collection, um, we are necessarily talking about an awesome political power. And so we have to be cognizant of these two things. And so that's where I'm at right now. Um, hopefully it intersects with, with broader themes. I think it connects to things that Alex said and things we'll discuss. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, well, one of the things I think that I find really frustrating about the financial inclusion stuff is because, um, and so for those who don't know, you know, part of the financial inclusion is about, it can be everything from like banking the unbanked, right? So there's this whole push to kind of get people to have relationships with financial institutions, whether it's like a basic checking account and so forth. Um, but it's also, you know, on the level of getting loans, right? Or it's on the level of trying to make people who either don't have a legible credit score um, to become kind of legible in the credit scoring system. And one of the things that I always find really kind of frustrating is that, you know, it's against the backdrop of all these ways that communities, particularly Black and Latino communities, have been, you know, um, uh, discriminate against in terms of being denied access to credit and so forth, right? And so a lot of these companies play up on people's histories with racial discrimination and with, you know, practices of redlining. And they, you know, will say like, oh, well, we're helping address, you know, people's being treated as an outsider and so forth. And that's how they kind of market their, their kind of moral place in, in this, you know, kind of uh, fintech economy. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how you've seen that play out sometimes, please. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that, um, that line of questioning and that prompt, Tamara. Um, you know, there is absolutely a 100% understandable imperative to become legible, to gain access to savings, credit, investment theoretically, and people fought long and hard about that. Um, you know, the civil rights community very much in the 60s and 70s pushed for fair credit reporting to be included in the system, to have accuracy, to have a sort of horizontal equity. That hasn't really pounded out because it turns out you can use proxy variables to discriminate as much as you want, and that's even easier in today's system of data aggregation. But there is a very real necessity to participate in the economy, which is unfortunately tethered to a certain form of surveillance. I mean, that that's what credit scoring is. Um, there's a very, very famous uh, credit scoring agency executive who used to say, we're, um, we're like the FBI, but we're investigating people for crimes against business. So it is a part, it is an, participating in the credit scoring system is necessary, but it comes with a cost that people can't reject. That's just what it is. And we all, you know, if we want to participate in the economy, we have to do that. And what's happening now is definitely 
this play on inclusion, which is familiar from other like neoliberal rhetoric um, that casts what is essentially a privatized um, tool that promises individual empowerment as something that is good for everybody when it's really good for that particular company and it's good for law enforcement with which they have not only contracts, but necessary reporting requirements. And so we're in this place where again, this inclusive rhetoric is important, but people are ignoring the vertical, right? The dynamics of domination here and the fact that people of color and immigrants and other folks who are marginalized in the financial world are also at risk from this other vector. And right now that is that conversation is not present um, you know, on the Hill, as we know, or even within organizing. And it's certainly not present in conversations about what the future financial system is going to look like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was going to ask, do you mind if I ask another question to this time to Alex, Chaz? I, I, I don't well, want to go for it. Go for it. <laughs> you know, Alex, I was thinking about with the shot spotter, what have been ways that the company tries to play up on people's very real concerns sometimes about safety in their neighborhoods and so forth? And, and how have you found that playing out? and the organizing level trying to kind of challenge that. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because that's what I was thinking about while Raul was uh, sharing. And well, I think one of the biggest examples is that when we first started sort of like, I don't know, I guess like interfacing with ShotSpotter as an issue, um, one of the pieces of their marketing that we had to figure out how to get around was like the 97% accuracy rate. ShotSpotter claims has a 97% accuracy rate of detecting gunshots. Um, What we later learned through um, research by the MacArthur Justice Center was that 97% accuracy rate is based off of police not actually reporting when it's Mm. not a gunshot. So if, if, you know, like nobody is telling them their technology is wrong, they get to use that as a marketing ploy. And, um, you know, once we started essentially like breaking down their marketing claims about where the data was inaccurate or just, you know, like flat out wrong and misleading, um, ShotSpotter now leads with the tagline that their technology saves lives. Um, and that yeah so so i think that uh in the way that they're able to do that is because they say that their technology will deploy officers within 60 seconds of an alert mm-hmm. uh which is true um but they are deploying officers to scenes that don't have any evidence of a gun crime um and so i think that like that is how we have seen shotspotter play up on folks like real fears of violence in their communities and you know shotspotter including the the ceo ralph clark have like come out and say like oh shotspotter is not the tool that's going to end gun violence it's just a tool in the toolbox it's part of like a larger crime fighting strategy um and when we talk to folks, when we're canvassing and we're we're talking to people about ShotSpotter, when we're explaining what the technology does, of course, folks are like, yes, I want something that is going to detect and tell me about gunshots in my neighborhood. Um, but as we talk to them more about, well, this doesn't actually stop the gunshots from happening in the first place. It's simply a microphone that is like alerting um, on top of it just being an ineffective, like it doesn't work. Um, it doesn't do what it says it's going to do. It doesn't lessen gun crime. That's when folks start to think deeper about what they need in terms of public safety. And to like what Raul was saying, I think like what we've been trying to like, you know, drive home and include more of like in our, like when we're talking to people is that like real public safety, people are not going to profit off of. And I think like around the inclusion piece, right? Like if we want to be like a truly inclusive or truly safe Mm -hmm. society, you're not going to have these corporate profiteers that are making just like wild amounts of money while people, people suffer. Cause if we really wanted to like, if, if they were truly invested and solving for the things that they say that they're solving for, they're not going to be making money off of this. And essentially, we'd have to eradicate the problem or like drastically reduce it um, because ShotSpotter only is relevant 
because gun violence exists. But if we start getting at the root causes, you know, it, it essentially makes their their company and technology irrelevant. And that, it's funny enough, Tamara, that I, the question I had in had in mind, I was going to act along the line along those same lines to Alex, because, you know, to, today, I, I mean, I was still thinking about, um, you know, these, these mass shootings that have been taken in place. And it's like mm -hmm. the inability to get anything done uh, to, to sort of um, to, to wrestle with, like, you know, gun regulation, gun culture in this in this uh, country and sort of recognizing that the, you know, the historical connections of what guns have 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 been um, in the history of uh, of this land where, where we're on and what guns were used um, and how that plays into um, the sort of the elevation of guns above Bibles and flags um, in, in, in a lot of ways. But I was in thinking about that, I was thinking like the the audacity of like putting, you know, you, you mentioned walking around your, your your neighborhood and seeing like, you know, six different, you know, shot spotter, you know, uh, you know, devices around it's like the audacity to be able to get get that into like black and brown neighborhoods uh, and and sort of have these um responses that that work around the edges and don't really get at the the heart of um you know what's what's at play um so when you mentioned that the you know some of the, the people that you um encounter in neighborhoods uh saying you know once you have conversations with them they get to um, discussing, you know, sort of the things that they really want uh, that really correlate with with, with safety. So I, I did want you to speak a little bit um, uh, to that and what um, perhaps maybe some barriers to to uh, getting those um, those, those uh, or, or erecting those those pathways um, uh, to, to to safety and. Um, and then another thing I, I was thinking about when you were answering that question, as as well as um, because you mentioned um, police talk about you know shot spotter as one tool in the toolbox. Like, what do we lose by having you know these uh, money dedicated towards these um, technologies? Like, what else could it be you know used for? So, if you could speak to that. Uh, yes, I think to answer both both questions. Um... When we talk to, so Chicago's contract is almost $9 million a year for ShotSpotter. It's like the second biggest contract that ShotSpotter has. $9 million is so much money and could also be a, a drop in the bucket, right? Depending on, on what we're using it for. But when we talk to people about like what they want to use $9 million on, police does not come up. They're talking about schools. They're talking about things that they want in their neighborhood. They're talking about like after school programming, jobs, housing, people are not naming police. They're definitely not naming these microphones because they don't even know half the time what these things, what this technology is on the light posts in their neighborhoods. And I think that that speaks to the audacity point is like people have been completely cut out of the process of naming what makes them feel safe or what they want for public safety. Um, and in terms of like barriers, well, I, I mean, sorry, I'm probably going to like shit talk ShotSpotter the whole time. Um, so like, I think just within the ShotSpotter example, right? Like we were going very hard last year to get, and still are to get this contract canceled. ShotSpotter hired a lobbyist and they've got a lobbyist talking to city council members, like all of the sort of issues that we raised about ShotSpotter, how, how it doesn't work. ShotSpotter wrote a letter to city council and was like, we'd like to work with you on these things to fix them, right? So in terms of like what is getting in the way, there's money in the way. Um, there's a lack of political will in the way as well. I think that that's really important. Some of the like, you know, we have a set of like city council members that are in support of canceling the contract. Um, and then they'll turn around and be like, but we need our constituents to tell us that they don't want it. And so they're essentially like, asking us for more organizing labor for them to go do the thing that they're already in agreement with that they know you know that they mm -hmm. effectively have the power to move on um and so i think that like that political will piece is, is definitely really important i also like you know i think to be like fully honest about the issue especially around an issue like shot spotter 
we're talking about defund. We are talking about defunding the police. Folks don't want to say that. You know, we have to like be very careful about when and how we use that messaging because it doesn't resonate with everybody. But that's what we're, we're talking about, taking away police power. And that's just not a thing that a, like a lot of elected officials um, are willing to do. It's also a thing that a lot of folks in our communities are not ready to do because they don't, you know, maybe have like access to the visioning part of what comes after policing or instead of policing. So, so I mean... While I'm like hopefully like very, very optimistic, you know, I, I have to be honest about what those barriers are. I, I wanted to ask a question, Avril, because, you know, when you're talking about the um, EBT cards and the data and, you know, it really kind of illustrates like how what would be like a public good, right? Like kind of is a way to create data. And then it's this data sharing between like the state and, and so forth. But it also just made me think about um, your work around like cash, right? And part of the reason why is because, in, and I want us to, you to tell us more about like the eCash Act and some of your work uh, challenging the elimination of kind of paper money being used. Because it made me think about like, you know, even the transition to like EBT, you know, getting rid of food stamps. And so, you know what I mean, right? It was like, and so forth. It's like, it's this different way of like being able to monitor and create like more data collection on like, you know, through biometric measures or whatever, on like who's using this stuff and to police people through kind of the use of public assistance. And so I wanted to ask you like, what do you see as some connections there with also the work you're doing around the eCash Act and so forth? Yeah, thanks so much, Tama. Um, and I'll try to get to the affirmative proposal in the eCash Act. Really quick though, I think a good way of talking about the EBT cards and public financial data collection is to connect it to what Alex was saying. And I think what we're all saying, which is that when there are systems of exploitation and when there are needs not being met, whether it's a need for safety, a need for money, something else, uh, people think that tech can just be jammed in there and it can like make the situation better. And one obsession is of course, maximizing data to gain transparency, right? And in some instances, this is necessary. And, you know, I have to be careful about this because I always feel like I'm on, I'm on my back foot with all of this shit. Like, it feels like the mall is opening up. There's all kinds of machinery. Like, kids back home are growing up in Terminator shit. But, like, we also have to think about what it means to collect data to run society, right? Data and society. Um, and the EBT cards are a good example because, yeah. um, you know, we want to feed people but the technology matters, right? And no one should be poor in the first place and not be able to afford food. But even within that, in, within the battles over what the welfare state was gonna look like, there was a long time where people were fighting about cash versus cards versus in-kind resources on both the left and right. Um, Trump wanted to de-datify things, right? He wanted to give people like wholesome, like American uh, harvest boxes. And so there are good and bad visions of getting rid of the data systems here. But we might have been a situation in the pandemic, for instance, where if you didn't um, have an EBT account associated with your card and you weren't able to use it online to buy groceries, like you aren't going to eat. So we had to dive in or rely on a data maximizing system in that instance. And, you know, for some people, this is fraught. You can't use an EBT card. Um, if you're undocumented, um, you know, if you use an EBT card and you're not the precise person within that household who's supposed to use it, like there can be a problem, et cetera, et cetera. So there are real risks here that come along with protecting the program for its integrity. And so what does the future look like? Um, right now, what's happening is that the US government is discussing um, a digital dollar system. And what that means is that we all use money that comes directly from government computers rather than going through the commercial banking system. Mm -hmm. The Federal Reserve has a vision where big tech comes in and like helps streamline things. And this actually just helps at the back of the house, helps corporations, et cetera. There's also a progressive vision for more bank accounts, right? And I support uh, postal banking and Fed accounts and all these ideas, et cetera. But we already know a little bit about the dangers of data collection, public data collection. Um, and we have to incorporate that into the baseline. So what I see is an affirmative vision but also really a harm reduction um, vision. And just part of it is replicating paper cash as digital cash. 
Uh, we're actually, I think, doing a good job within the last few months, especially pushing back on preserving paper cash. People are down with the notion now that when cashless stores come in, like that's a canary in the coal mine for gentrification. And we've got all these problems, et cetera, et cetera, with the data collection and law enforcement. But we have to have a vision for the future. And one way to do that is to create, um, you know, what uh, myself and a lot of folks around the Hill, uh, Stephen Lynch, uh, for the head of the House FinTech Task Force, a lot of my colleagues in the, um, the racial justice space, including Acre, et cetera, are um, pushing for is, is this electronic cash system that is offline, one meaning it reaches the people who do not have high-speed internet access in their homes, who a lot of these like bullshit FinTech products will never reach, and that's a lot of black and brown folks, but it also avoids some of these complications with data, right? And we don't expect everybody to use cash for everything, just like they don't use it now. But right now we're gonna create a panoptic synoptic system. Um, you know, I'm gonna fight that and try to minimize data collection within a bank account system because I think everybody should have a bank account. But if we don't preserve a space for informal exchange, like specific communities are fucked. We got a lot to do. And I think it's imperative that we have this vision because, you know, the conversation about the public system, again, is happening within closed doors for the most part. Mm -hmm. And we're organizing groups are starting to see it, but it's going to take a while. And then there's also all this other shit out here like crypto, right? And people are saying in cryptos, you know, sometimes it's data maximizing, sometimes it's data minimizing, mm -hmm. but it is, again, a technology that does a data play that is um, thrown at specific communities now and said, this is, the, this is future money, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't trust banks because they railroaded us in 2008, among other reasons, but you can go all the way back to the Freedman Savings Bank and you can go all the way back to the Dawes Act, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so people have come to crypto as like an alternative, right? And they're very, very strong, politically strong entrepreneurs of color in this space who say that these products are hope, are the mm. future. And if mm. we don't have a vision of flourishing in the finance space, as well as all the other spaces, like we're gonna lose. Because right now, every train in an outer borough is papered wall to wall with crypto ads. Mm -hmm. um, you know, watch the Super Bowl, and that's like what 30% of the ad content was, mm -hmm. right? So we are facing a point now where we have to ask what are the costs of being included in the financial system, but we also have to build something else. We have to reconstruct or this mm -hmm. moment will pass us by and we will not be able to wind back the clock. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, in part, part of that, I, you know, I, thanks for that. I'm thinking about a, a bunch <laughs> of things, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering like what the, you know, what the reception is, is in that space because, you know, so much of when you talk about data, data collection um, uh, around uh, finances and, and, and the use of money is, is connected to these um, long held like perceptions of like, you know, people of color, right? Um, I, I think about all of the pilot programs that are taking place now, like they, we have a pilot going here in Baltimore around guaranteed income and paying young you know, parents giving them money. And, you know, part of the, the whole idea of having a pilot is to be able to track um, what people are doing with their money, right? And it's the, it's the presumption that we can't trust people with, um, with with money or to be able to meet their own needs or, you know, this this pocket watching uh, in, in, uh, in a lot of ways. So, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, raising the, the, the flag and raising the alarm about, you know, the ways that, you know, digital currency processes are, are going to track and sort of, re, uh, you know, recreate and entrench in some ways um, that that surveillance, you know, how, and, and I know you present a lot, you know, on the Hill and, and you talk to legislators, how, how what's the reception um, there when you raise um, these concerns? Uh, thanks, Chaz. Um, so this is a real cross-cutting issue. And I think we've all found in our various, uh, you know, pockets of this world that when you talk about big data or surveillance or privacy, like the usual po political coalitions kind of scramble a little bit, right? 
like you've got a lot of people in the Democratic Party who have not thought about the consequences of mass surveillance since they helped pass the Patriot Act 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you've got a lot of people in the Republican Party who also are just going to be NATSEC hawks forever. At the same time, you have civil rights people um, mm-hmm. in the in the Dem Party and you have civil liberties people in the Republican Party. What's interesting about cash is that it not only is it a money or a technology that you know, itself does not see class, does not see race, anybody can use it, et cetera. But there is oddly nothing more American than cold, hard cash, right? And so you have people glomming onto this in a strange, strange way mm-hmm. um, because it is a universal tech, right? And I have a particular vision for this and I have particular reasons for doing this. You know, in my world, we get an e-cash system, everybody gets multiple cards, um, you can do cash, you can do banking, you can do essentially a replication of checking, you can send remittances, et cetera. Like we have public fintech that people can use and doesn't have to trace you. In my vision, like in this kind of corny maybe, but we call them all tubmans, all the cash. And this is picking up on not only the monetary reform, but like Chaz, your point that privacy hero as well as monetary hero, um, or, you know, we wanted to put Harriet Tubman on the 20 and we didn't get it. Um, but that's my vision, right? And there are people who value privacy for different reasons. So we face the tough questions of organizing. And this is true on the local level, protecting cash as well. A lot of small businesses want to protect cash. They don't want to pay fees to the credit card companies. Yeah. And that goes, yeah, that goes in Tamara, you know, the small business space better than I do. But my understanding is that goes for immigrant small businesses. And that also goes. Oh, yeah. No, take your take cash to Chinatown, honey. I'm being totally serious when I say that. <laughs> like with the like carts, I'm totally being serious. Like, you know what I mean? So sorry. go ahead. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, it's it's a strange sort of reception mm-hmm. on the Hill Chats. But I think it's precisely because it presses on these questions mm-hmm. that we're all trying to reorganize. Right. And we're trying to get people to see, hey, like there's a lot of different angles on this. So in a way, we like threw a wrench in everything um, in the gears, right? Mm-hmm. But what's going to happen when those gears start rolling again? I'm, I'm not sure it's going to take, again, a lot of connections, a lot of organizing, a lot of bringing tech justice people into this space. Um, you know, financial reformers, tech justice people, usually on two different islands, can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it, it matters what we build. It matters how we push. It matters how we organize. And that'll ultimately determine whether it crosses the line or not. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask a question that brings all three of you kind of in, 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 uh, on a topic that I feel like y- y'all could help us understand more is, you know, um, and you briefly alluded to it, Roel, when you said that, you know, there's these kind of different debates about like privacy, right? And one of the things that, you know, I've been in some of these like working meetings with people who work on tech and privacy. And I've been like really curious about when people are like, oh, you know, we'll just create an MOU with the police for the police not to use this data. And there's this kind of idea that like, and so it becomes these conversations about like data sharing and how do we avoid data sharing with this, you know, the police. And I just don't trust that that is going to be really work out. And, you know, Chaz, um, uh, um, not only is he a law professor and, and, and you know, a, a legal scholar, but he has a, um, a background in working as a public defender. And so I just feel like all three of you are in a good place to kind of help us think through this faith that some people have that you can kind of have no data sharing with the police through these MOUs and these agreements. And so can you help us think through some of that? Because I've seen that being proposed in meetings. Alex, you want to respond? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think we're right. I mean, we should just never trust the police ever. Like, yeah, period. Um, I think, I guess like what that made me think of and what I haven't really like talked a lot about a lot today was like ShotSpotter and the data that it collects. Um, I think that, you know, like ShotSpotter is specifically deployed in like black and brown neighborhoods, period. It cover like in Chicago, it covers 80 over 80% of Chicago's black population, over 70% of Chicago's Latinx population, and only works one out of 
10 times. <laughs> so it's like, it's collecting data about gun violence in specific neighborhoods and it's inflating statistics about violence in these neighborhoods. And so even if there were, there was some sort of like MOU between the police department and the community on what data can and cannot be used around shot spotter, um, just the fact of where it's deployed, like automatically influences decisions you know, whether there was, you know, like whether there was some sort of like formal understanding. The Chicago Office of Inspector General, the city's independent auditor, did a study, like did an investigation of the use of shot spotter. And police officers actually said that even if they weren't responding to a specific shot spotter alert, their anecdotal and like narrative understanding of there's a lot of shot spotters in this area, I'm going to patrol here. It was actually like increasing stop and frisk. Mm -hmm. And that is based off of no, you know, like not based off of a collected number of shot spotter alerts, just literally the existence of these microphones in those neighborhoods. And so I just, you can never trust the police, period. <laughs> I think that's the, that's the bottom line. And, and, and you know, Alex, I, I mean, I'm sort of, thinking and, and, and wrestling with sort of the, um, the constitutional and legal sort of challenges in, in, in that space, right? So when you, when you talk about like, um, you know, police officers uh, making the determinations about where to uh, patrol, you know, based on some of these technologies, there, there, there are additional questions that come along with that sort of, you know, how, um, how could a shot spotter detection, even given it's you know, ineffectiveness and, and accuracy be used in the development of reasonable suspicion to create a stop and frisk, right? How can it uh, be used and, and, and perceived by court um, and, and making a probable cause determination to, to arrest someone, right? So it, you have this relationship where um, these uh, wholly questionable te technologies, right, that are, that are pushed um, in this um colorblind uh you know logics and, and and rhetoric interacting with like criminal law that that also pretends and you know purports to be colorblind as well and sort of them working together to legitimate one another um which is like uh crazy right so so we also think about the relationship between technology and law and and, and race mm -hmm. um, um in this in this space as well and how it impacts how we think about how we pursue and how we ultimately protect um, this, this notion of, of privacy, which we can talk more about. What, is that, what does that uh, mean for most you know, people uh, that look like us, right? I think it's important to note um, that poor folks have never had any privacy in this country, right? Going back to uh, the poor houses, going back to slavery, which is necessarily a total surveillance institution going back to bringing in uh, indigenous uh, tribes and recording them and giving them white surnames, et cetera. Like datification necessarily accompanies the sort of system that we have here. Um, and there are cops, so to speak, even within the systems that are most benevolent, mm -hmm. right? Or supposed to be. People patrolling fraud within EBT programs, mm -hmm. for instance. Mm -hmm. um, even though EBT fraud is like less than 1% even done by people with the cards versus retailers and blah, blah, blah. But um, so you have this situation where there are essentially cops and monitors and everything in the financial system. Um, this question of like reasonable suspicion and like what's warranted and not is deputized by the state to every financial institution under the Patriot Act. And so a teller or whoever operates the user end transaction is, you know, trying to decide what's a reasonable suspicion or not. And, uh, you know, that plays her out along certain lines. And it doesn't necessarily even have to be like uh, white teller and people of color, right? So I used to, uh, I did direct services with low-income New Yorkers for a while, helping them with a lot of this fintech stuff. And, you know, I remember a situation where a Western Union teller um, 
you know, stop somebody's sending money for a medical procedure to their family because they thought they were from Haiti and they don't like people from Haiti if they're from Guyana and it's like they're Dominican. So like there's a problem there, right? And so that doesn't happen, right? So the transaction doesn't happen. Like this person doesn't get the money for the medical procedure. And that's because the state is just said, we're going to do all this through the private system and they'll figure it out, right? Which is what they do in all of these systems to avoid even the possibility of the Fourth Amendment applying, mm -hmm. right? Um, at least, you know, Chaz, you probably have a more sophisticated take on that. But I see this happening, you know, consistently everywhere as a public-private partnership, like feeding off of, again, these spaces of exploitation, as I think we're all discussing. And like, mm -hmm. like Alex said, like there doesn't have to be spot shotter if there's not this gun violence in this way, right? Mm -hmm. None of this crime in this way. And there doesn't have to be that if people like actually had money, right? Like the disciplinary function would not, the dragnet would not have to exist if we had a real model of social provisioning, like in this country and a real vision of human flourishing. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're talking, it made me think about like, I mean, because part of the way that people, whether it's like in the lending, you know, kind of um, in banking or whether in credit and so forth, or whether it's in policing, like the way they've justified these technologies, and this goes to Chaz's point too, is like by saying like, oh, it takes like kind of um, the individual who might enact bias or discrimination out and it makes it scientific, right? And so, and it, it's been this way to try to insulate from kind of claims of racial discrimination and so forth and say, oh, we have like scientific measurements and all this stuff, right? But it's like your story about Western Union made me think about, you know, one of the things, Alex, when you were talking about, it's just like, I thought that was really deep what you were sharing about how, you know, just the presence of ShotSpotter, not the data that it's collecting, right? But the presence of ShotSpotter was used as kind of like, oh, we need to put more police here, right? And so this question, and so it's like, it's predictive technology. You know, we hear about predictive policing, right? Like, oh, we use this technology to kind of predict where we need to be and everything. And that's one of the ways the police try to like justify, you know, using quote unquote science instead of racism, right? But the question becomes like, why are all these cameras, why are ShotSpotter, why do they pick black and Latino neighborhoods in the first place to say, we're gonna have such a large presence in, right? Like this is the racism. And this is like the bullshit that like, I feel like some of the like scientific, you know, like some of the privacy surveillance technology world doesn't really deal with. It's like the racism proceeds, even just kind of like where people decide technology should be, right? Or where the technology should be enacted, right? You know what I mean? Because they're not relying on data, right? Uh, they're relying on like, we see these cameras and now like we'll be there too, right? But again, why are the cameras put where they are in the first place? Do you know what I mean, right? So, sorry. This annoys me in some of these conversations. So not you guys, the other conversations I've, I've been part of. Okay, anyways, thank you. <laughs> so, Tamara, I think what, what you're essentially um, getting at too, and to, to, to add add to that um, for, for our guests to respond uh, quickly, um, which I think is something that's undergirding both Alex's uh, work and comments and Raul's as, as well as racial capitalism, right? Uh, so this, this 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 notion, um, and, and I know Alex talked about it a lot in the, the police brutality uh, bonds context um, in that report that you all should uh, go and um, read. But this, this you know this I this notion of locating uh, sort of that that you know that exploitation on the backs of particular communities, particular um, <laughs> people is 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 central in in, in both of these contexts that we um, you know have been. Um, Discussing, right? So, you know, it, along those lines, and it, you know, how how should you know impact the communities be be, be thinking about um, resistance and like technology and data, you know, with this understanding, with this this lens of racial capitalism at at, at play, right? Like, how, how which direction does that push us in? What do we what do we do with that, right? Is is um, data collecting data a part of that? Like, do do we need technology? Do we need data collection? Um, Tamara talked about this uh, a lot and thinking about good governance. Like we have to collect some data, right? <laughs> we, mm -hmm. uh, to... Yeah. 
how should communities be thinking about um, data and technology, understanding what's what's the central driver, um, not being racial capitalism? And can I just add something to that that I would like for um, you both to kind of help us think about too, um, that piggybacks off of Chaz's question is kind of like, what do you think data literacy is for us in these moments? Just because data literacy is kind of a hot thing too, but people have different approaches to what that means. And so what does data literacy mean to you in relation to kind of thinking about the role of data and what we want, you know what I mean? And getting the things we deserve and want. Yeah, great set of questions. And I'll try not to forget the literacy point there at the end. Um, I think we've all suggested sort of different levels and angles for resistance. Ultimately, uh, you know, we don't want to work in silos, though. So I'm, I guess I'm going to try to group things by, by type of action rather than actions from different spaces or different angles. Um, first of all, there's, there's defensive action, right? Like Donald Payne, who is from historically back neighborhood in Jersey City, New Jersey is leading a bipartisan effort to protect paper cash, right? To mm-hmm. stop, to hold down gentrification, like all the obvious law enforcement concerns, et cetera. There's a lot of harm reduction work to be done. Um, people who work in the informal sector are sort of constantly under the threat of um, payments technology getting uh, destroyed for them, essentially. Uh, for instance, sex workers now rely a lot on cryptocurrency because of the surveillance within the financial system. Mm-hmm. And so there's organizing around that. Um, there are immediate defensive steps to take. And then depending upon your politics beyond that, like how do you confront the racial capitalism and the imperialism here is, um, you know, do you want to seize the state and create public systems or do you want to go community route? I don't necessarily think that those approaches are at odds. They do lead to sort of different sets of politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for instance, within the public system, we are trying to create, you know, many of us, including a political coalition of organizers, including Acre, are trying to create a public fintech system, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't avoid all of these problems, but at least does not allow the state to hide behind the private sector and use it as a force multiplier and an observer in this way, mm-hmm. right? But then there are all kinds of people with community currency projects out there doing public banking, doing monetary reform that are taking these tech questions, I think, more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, at a deeper level, even we have a situation here where we have subjugated knowledges, right? Mm-hmm. Like the monetary system was very pluralistic around the world, or the monetary systems were very pluralistic around the world until capitalism, right? Which necessarily replaces things with a uniform standard of value, et cetera, et cetera. And then it pushes that into subaltern communities within the United States in our case, and then around the world as well. So we've lost a lot of knowledge about how money might possibly work. I think that's always gonna end in violence, because like, I'm just gonna be honest and like every society is defined by violence in in some level, right? But there are ways to organize things that we have lost. Like you go back and you look at uh, Incan archeology span and you see all these systems of intricate ropes that represent like accounting records. And it's like, that's a way of thinking about things that we we don't know anything about, right? And so my final note on that point is that I think an international perspective is also really, really important here. And there are people who are coming up with new ideas for resistance um, in the global South and elsewhere uh, that we can look to. I mean, FinTech is actually crushing the developing world way harder than it is neighborhoods of color in the United States, right? Like you've got places where Facebook wants to establish the first digital ID system like Mm. via its financial services project. You have situations where these big tech companies are using finance and payments to functionally perform sovereign tasks. Mm. And like, that's a crazy situation. And yet people are always pushing back there. And so having an international forum is not additive. And I'm sorry, we're only talking about it at the end here, but I think it is part of like how we generate forms of resistance. That's apparent in the finance space, but I'd like to think it applies to tech as a whole. Um, and, you know, especially the carceral part, but y'all tell me. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think uh, to 
I think related to what some of Raul was saying, I think an effective example of resistance and organizing around ShotSpotter in particular just came out of Buffalo, you know, days after they are in the process of grieving and mourning, uh, they had a budget vote in city council, um, but the city council like continued on with the budget process. And in there was a line item for ShotSpotter and the community overwhelmingly came out and said, we don't want ShotSpotter. The answer to gun violence or violence in general is like not more surveillance and it's not more policing. And I think that that is, um, I think to what Raul was saying, like, effective resistance and organizing is going to take breaking down the silos between our issues and between our different movements to make these connections. Like, I think it's so, this is now the second panel that I've been on with Raul and Tamara. And we, you know, at first I was like, how are these things going to connect? And then as we started talking, I'm like, it is so obvious how these things connect and I think more of these conversations is what like you know continues to to build power um and and I think just on the like last question around like data literacy and how our community should be thinking about data also on the first panel that we did together um hearing Raul talk about like these forms of um, public assistance and the way they collect data now all of a sudden I'm like oh my God, everything is data. <laughs> everything is data. And I, I think, you know, what we talked about in our like prep conversation last week was just that I think what's like really effed up is that in a lot of these conversations, um, whether it's about like data and privacy, technology, surveillance, it's a lot of white people assuming that we as people of color don't know what, they don't know, like, or we assume, they assume that we don't, like, understand how the technology works. We don't understand the data part of this. And that's, like, actually, that's so inaccurate, right? Like, this is a panel of no white people. Um, and I think that that is, like, a very, like, we need more of these, right? Because we actually do understand this stuff. When you are, when we're talking to folks on the street about, the placement of ShotSpotter mics in cameras and red light cameras and speed cameras, they understand this stuff. They might not finish their sentence with, and this is data collection, but they understand that the city or like, you know, whatever the sort of like powers may be in that context, like they understand that information about them is being collected. Uh, and and uh, yeah, I just, I think that if I guess if it's a matter of us like telling them like and this is data then sure but I I actually don't know like we are very data literate um in community yeah I'll just hit on the data literacy point one thing again um there's a lot of organizing to do I think around just black boxes mm -hmm. like it's just a complicated term. But the problem is that um, there is information that we don't have about the watchman, right? Like no one is really knowing what's going on there in terms of a lot of the algorithmic processes, especially those that are used in fusion centers, which bring public and private data together. And so gaining our own transparency um, and watching up, um, you know, or surveillance, as Chaz talks about, is I think really, really critical. And that's its own form of data literacy, I think. And again, this is not to say that we should always be like, find that data system and strangle it. Um, you know, tech can be really helpful. You know, I was just talking about the, the developing concept context, but it is also true that, you know, many women in Latin America and Africa are just never going to be credit visible, like in their countries based on et cetera. So like, we do have to, I don't want to say balance, but we have to integrate our thinking about these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And that would be data literacy to me. Like, do you know, like the positives and the negatives of this? Do you know if we're overproducing harmful information or underproducing helpful information? Like, mm -hmm. have you dug into this? And the people who answer that question, what is helpful or harmful, need to be the people who are being surveilled. Mm -hmm. And so organizing for that, for having our own eyes and our own understanding, I think is critical. So to answer your point about data literacy, I think it's 
it's a channel for all kinds of things, but like, as you've been pointing to, as we've all been pointing to, it's got to mean something new. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can I add one more thing? I'm so sorry. <laughs> I think Raul's point just reminded me of like more conversations about data being public and like us actually having control over how it's used i think there was like you know every ever you know like whenever our like big platforms like change their terms and conditions and we just like scroll down and like hit accept and then we kind of like talk about it on that platform like i just hit accept we you know like i think there's probably like a little there's another step Mm -hmm. that we could take collectively but i think in general just like planting the seed for folks that there is a world in which they don't like there are not corporate profiteers off of mm-hmm. our existence. Um, and I think that that just like speaks back, speaks back to like all of our fights at the bottom line. It's like nobody should be profiting off of any of this stuff. And once we have that sort of seed planted and like understand that we can actually take back control of those things and ask the questions like that Raul is naming, like. Yeah, I, I, I just, I think that that's like really important that we should be thinking about too. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say very quickly before Chaz closes us out is that I see Alex and Rel, both of your work contributing a lot to data literacy. And as someone who teaches like advanced research methods in sociology, you know, I see how data literacy is often to me kind of treated as kind of apolitical, right? It's about a lot of times it's associated with like numeracy and just understanding like graphs and numbers and that's important, right? But what I appreciate about both your work is that I feel like, you know, you're aware of how little privacy um, certain communities get, but how much privacy, right? Like the the people who inflict these, you know, the people and the companies and the actors who inflict all these repressive kind of life circumstances on us, right? And so to me, you know, Alex, one of the things we didn't talk about in the forum was about all the work that Acre did on those workshops to help us read police budgets, right? And these public workshops that you created. And this is partly where you showed us like certain line items aren't obvious and this is how they hide the money and this is so forth and so on, right? And to me, Raul, like you being committed to kind of getting, especially, and you and I talked about this the first time we ever met in person, right? It was like our commitment to thinking about more communities of color being kind of, you know, um, participating in conversations about the monetary system. Because a lot of times it is these economists and people on the Hill and people who are kind of don't really care, right? About how it's playing out for people in the day-to-day lives, right? And so, I just want to say, I see you guys as kind of offering us the best of data literacy in the vision that I see it as. And I'm just very, very grateful. So thank you. So thank you. Right back at you, Tamara. So this has been um, what we anticipated. Uh, This has been a great, great, great conversation. Um, Thank you all. Uh, Thanks for everybody uh, that joined in, tuned in, watched it. Uh, thank you to the folks who are going or watching this at a later date and time. Um, thank you, Tamara. Uh, thank you, Alex. Thank you, uh, Raul. Um, if you don't know everyone here, um, get to know our work and what we do. Uh, support our organization. Support um, uh, the work that we are uh, doing. Um, and so I'll just say in, in, in closing, because I know we are over the hour uh, mark. Um, when Tamara and I uh, met um, and sort of thinking about the conversation that we wanted to have, um, we decided to title it um, Race to Balance uh, Resistance, um, uh, in, in part after a, a paper um, that I wrote. Um, you can check that out. Um, but in that paper, um, you know, I, I wrote that paper at a moment and attempted to respond um, to deep um sadness that I was experiencing and, 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 and feeling with, with others around the enormity of the surveillance state. Um, and, you know, in, in my thinking, and, and I talk about sort of, you know, share some slave narratives in uh, the, the, the piece, and as Raul talked about, you know, enslavement being one of the most intensive, uh, you know, surveillance and control uh, uh, institutions ever, like if people found ways to resist in, in, in that deafening uh, circumstances, uh, mm-hmm. then, then we should have some, um, hope to be able to continue to resist uh, now, mm-hmm. even um, thinking about, you know, 
tech making surveillance and watching and monitoring um, ubiquitous, um, seemingly. Um, and, you know, one of the other things I was, I was thinking about, and, you know, in, in, in that paper, I talk about looking back to, um, you know, slave narratives and, and, and uh, enslavement, not only as, as, as a way of generating um, sort of inspiration, but also as, as a way to sort of use, um, you know, those stories and, and ways that shape law and actually policy. Um, and in thinking about those narratives, um, I was thinking about some of uh, the things that uh, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman uh, noted in terms of suppression of resistance, right? So Frederick Douglass talks about uh, how on the rare few occasions when uh, enslaved people uh, were, were having days off, uh, right? That one day a year, Christmas maybe, um, how uh, slave masters would sort of uh, encourage them to, to drink um, alcohol and to drink a lot of alcohol um, and in a way to not have them use the time to go and work, right? To, to, to go and lease themselves out um, and sort of get an understanding of how much their, their labor is worth, how much their, their, their time is worth, how much their um, mm -hmm. uh, bodies are worth as a way to suppress uh, resistance. Um, I think about uh, Harriet Tubman talking about, you know, um, uh, you know, slaves being forced to uh, thing um, as, as they work as a way, um, at least they, they didn't understand what was actually happening. There was organizing happening in those lyrics, uh, but as a way for, um, you know, slave masters to, to sort of suppress uh, and, and give the appearance of acceptance um, and push back against resistance. I, I think in a lot of ways, the new technologies that are being introduced and some of the neoliberal logics um, around them, about them being neutral, about them being inclusive, about them being effective, um, is also uh, targeted pushback on resistance. And I think what has come out of this conversation is that we need to push through uh, that to get to the heart of what is actually happening. Um, and I think we have to be able uh, to, to push through the noise, um, you know, and, and, and um, to be able to get um, and challenge um, uh, and, and tackle that to be able to effectively uh, dismantle these systems. So. I'll leave you all with that um, wow. and looking forward to having more, more conversation. So take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. And thank you too, again, to Rigo, Lara Guzman for producing this uh, panel. Thank you everyone. Thank you.